Well, good morning, Omni. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Uh, so good to see you guys. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors actually over at Stonegate. And uh, in a former life before coming to Texas, my wife and I actually, who's here with me today, uh, we were church planners. And so I just love the story that God started for me personally, just kind of track with what the Lord's been doing in your guys' church planning adventure. Uh, my very first Sunday over at Stonegate was the Sunday that Omni was sent out. And that the Lord commissioned you as a brand new church and birthed the new people of the Lord to be sent out to Cedar Hill and to, to reach folks in this community. And uh, it's been really exciting to just kind of continue to walk that journey with Valentine and talk with him and hear his story and, and also just hear about all the, the, the people here at Omni and how much he loves you. Um, and I'm sure you guys know this, but I, I just would feel remiss if I didn't say this. You guys have an incredible pastor. Um, you really do. Valentine's just one of, yeah, Amen. One of the most big-hearted, kind, generous, Jesus-loving men that I know. So super thankful for him, love Valentine, and uh, love the work that you guys are doing here at Omni. So it's a pleasure to be here with you this, uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be diving into Luke 15, so if you want to turn there uh, as we get going, I want to tell you a few things I've been thinking about this week, even as you guys have been walking through this series and thinking about what it means to, to be a disciple. Um, what it means at the core to follow Jesus. Uh, if you're going to walk this thing out, and I don't know about you guys, but any length of time of being a Jesus follower, you begin to have these questions of like, am I doing this right? Like, is this, is this working? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? So how great is it for you guys as a church family to pause and actually ask that question for the summer and just say, what does it mean to be an authentic, true follower of Jesus? What are some of the markers of that? Um, one of the things I want to talk about today, I think, is at the very core, the very essence, the very nature of that. Um, A.W. Tozer, a theologian and pastor, years ago said this, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. And I think there's some truth to that, but I think there's another question that begs to be asked as you and I go about our lives, as we live within the pavement of our lives, as we live in the daily grind, Monday through Friday, of responsibilities and kids and jobs and pressures and stresses. And that question, that question that often drives much of who we are, our desires, our appetites, our affections, our priorities, our budgets, and everything about us is actually this question. What do you think about when you think about what God thinks about you. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but think about it with me for a second. What do you think about when you think about what God thinks about you? When God is sitting up, ruling and reigning over all of the world, over all of creation, do you feel distant? Do you think when God looks down upon you, he thinks of someone whose world he doesn't concern himself with, that he's got other things that he's preoccupied with? When you think about, when you think about what God thinks about when he thinks about you, do you think of someone who's upset at you? who maybe like a frustrated parent stands off in the corner waiting for you to get it right and find himself just a tad annoyed with you? What's interesting about this is we all walk around with this idea about what God thinks about us, and it shapes so much of who we are. Uh, when I first became a Christian, um, a friend of mine named JT who I'd grown up with, I wanted him to come to church with me, and he'd often tell me, I can't go to church with you because I'd probably get struck by a lightning bolt. So for him, when he thought about what God thought about him, he thought broken. He thought irredeemable. He thought too big of a mess and he had gone too far for God to really love him. That was his thought when he thought about what God thought about him. And our default thinking, often we go through life, we go through life with all sorts of questions of God, where are you? Do you really love me? And not just formal sense, like, hey, I read the Gospels, I know you love the world, I know you died on a cross, but, but, but not in a collective sense. 
But God, knowing your name, your story, your history, your flaws, God, do you love me? Now, not in a sense, too, of just like, well, God loves me in this broad sense, but rather God loves me in this sense that he adores me. The way a dad or a mom does when they watch their new toddler take their first steps. I can't take my eyes off you. I love you. There's this deep adoration for you. I'm enthralled by you. And this often feels like, especially for men in the room, if we're honest, this feels a little mushy to talk about this. Oh, love, feelings. This gets a little squishy. But in reality, this is the deepest substance stuff of life. We often want to, in our Christian life, get so far ahead of ourselves in thinking about the, the deepest areas of theology. If I can just master the Trinity, if I can just understand the atonement, if I can just make sense of the Old Testament, if I can just, you know, in some ways open my Bible this week. Whatever it is, we want to dive into the deep end of theology. I had this professor in seminary, and he would frequently tell us, and this was a guy who was a theologian's theologian. He had written more commentaries and books and had more degrees than, than a thermometer. And this guy was absolutely brilliant. He'd stand up in front of our class, Dr. Demarest, and he would tell us, the deepest end of all theology is that God loves you. That's, the, that's as deep as it gets. The deep end of theology is the, the, that, that, that God loves me, a sinner, a broken person, a person who is, is small and finite, a person who's often living for myself, that God loves me, that God knows me. And here's the thing about that. It's the easiest truth to understand. I mean, our kids right here in this room, they can understand that Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. But this is the easiest truth to understand with your head, and it will take an entire lifetime to get it into your heart. To be able God loves you, that God loves you, and when we grasp this love, what this love does is it empowers us, it changes us, it stirs our affections for proper motivations for holy and godly living. Not because we're white-knuckling it, not because we're gritting it out, but rather when we look and say, the God of the universe loves me. The God of the universe cares deeply about me. And immediately inside of our heads, a lot of us have these yeah buts. It's almost a disease. The yeah buts begin to creep up and they take shape. Yeah, but if, if you really knew my story, yeah, but if you'd known where I'd gone when I was younger, yeah, but if you really knew what I was involved with even this week, yeah, buts, yeah, buts, yeah, buts. But yet I've touched all the Bible and there's no footnotes for your yeah buts. The love of God is so exhaustive, is so expansive, is so immense that it covers all the sins that you could ever bring to the table. Do you really believe that the grace of God is greater than your trespasses? Do you really believe that? And it takes a lifetime for that to work itself into our marrow to shape us into people that are driven by the love of God. And so in Luke 15, we're going to look at a, a parable that I know many of you are familiar with today, but I, it's, it's just altogether extraordinarily, and in a sense, too, of, of driving home, of communicating to us the most important truth about what it means to know that God loves us, that God is for us, and that our identity is rooted in that. Here's the thing. So Jesus is, is setting up shop. He's often going around teaching people, and he loves to confound them. And the Pharisees are there, and then there's tax collectors. Tax collectors basically is a fill-in for the worst people you can imagine. So just imagine Al-Qaeda shows up to church. And, and they're there, and then you have the most moral people you can imagine, and they show up to church. And they both want answers from Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is able to speak to both groups of people. What's fascinating about it, the tax collectors are known for being the least religious people out there. And Jesus is supposed to be a rabbi, and they, they have nothing in common. And isn't that interesting? Jesus is usually liked by people that he doesn't have much in common with. Isn't that interesting that people like Jesus even if they don't have a lot in common with him? 
Jesus is liked by people who are not like him. Isn't that fascinating? That there's something altogether captivating and enthralling about his message and who he is, that he's able to welcome in the worst of the worst because of the message of the gospel isn't necessarily go clean yourself up and then come back, but rather I love you, that I'm for you, that I want good for you, that I want to bring you home. So many of us live our lives as if God is trying to pay us back when in reality he's trying to bring us back. And we think, God, as soon as I atone for my mess, as soon as I get my stuff together, as soon as my family's not such a train wreck, then I'll come back to church. Then I'll come back to Jesus. Then I'll come back to whatever it is, fill in the blank. But that's not the idea. God is not trying to pay us back. He's trying to bring us back. And the Pharisees, they've built an identity standing in opposition to this very message of grace. I mean, Pharisee just means religious separatist. That's what it means. That's a fun word, right? Well, who wouldn't want to hang out with the religious separatists? Those sound like a great group of people, right? So here are the religious separatists, and their view, their, their understanding is, hey, if we can just separate ourselves off from society, because that's where all the sin is, all the sin is out there, all the bad stuff's out there, then we'll manage to please God. But we know that's not true, right? Because sin's not out there, sin's in here. And I don't need a new culture, I need a new nature. I don't need a new community, I need a new heart. I need a new identity, an identity that it says my heart has been changed, my desires have been changed, my affections have been changed. And so Jesus tells this story to both crowds. You've got to think about it. You've got the most religious people and you've got the most irreligious people. And Jesus tells a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So here's a, a young man, and, and I don't know about you, this doesn't take a lot of explanation, but anytime you go to your parents while they're still alive, and you say, can I have your stuff, that's bad form, okay? That's bad. We don't need a lot of translate. That carries across all cultures. In some ways, what he's saying to him is, I wish you were dead. Would you just hurry up and die already? I don't want you, I want the stuff. I don't want relationship with you, I want to go out and do my own thing. This younger son has a, a posture where he's, he's seeking life and he's looking around at the world and he goes, where life will be found, where, where happiness will be found, where identity will be found is me going out into the world and living it up. This is, this is you only live once. This is YOLO. This is I'm going to go for it. I'm going to swing big. I'm going to take all the world has to offer and I'm going to see what I can get out of it. And, and the father uh, incredibly actually meets his request. And this comes at great cost because in order to sell land, you usually have to take a loss. He knows exactly what his rebellious son is about to do. But no matter, he says, if you don't want relationship with me, then that's fine. I'm not going to force you into it. Go out into the world and you go see what you want. He's looking for happiness and joy. And you and I, friends, we're not much different than that, are we? There are, there are all sorts of parts of my life where I look at the Lord and I say, not your will be done, but my will be done. Where I stand and I say, not your kingdom, but my kingdom. Not your priorities, but my priorities. Lord, that really won't lead to happiness. Me repenting of me, my sin, me turning from that desire, me trusting you and walking by obedience. Even when life is hard, even when life is falling apart, there's no way that you're good in the midst of that. I'm going to go seek happiness over here instead. So what happens? Verse 13, not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property and reckless living. Far away. Think about that. What do you do when you want to rebel? You go far away. I come from Vegas. Vegas is a town built on people going far away. In fact, we put a slogan on that. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This idea that you can go far enough away to find your desires, to live them out. So what do you do when you want to hide? You run. What do you do when you want to sin? You run away from community, away from family, away from relationship, away from God. You try to get as far away as you can. And it says he squandered his property in reckless living. I don't have to describe reckless living, right? Maybe I do. We're in Dallas or Texas. Everyone here is good moral people, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. He's right. Because here's the truth. I, I don't know about some of you, but I bet there's some of us in this room, we are doing reckless living even this week. We are living it up. We are doing reckless living even on Friday night. We do reckless living all the time. Saying, God, I just want the stuff of life. I just want the blessings. I just want the things. And God, I don't want you. And we squander that. And what was once an adventure, a fun Friday night, turns into an addiction. And those places of happiness that we're chasing down, be it a relationship that we know is unhealthy for us, be it in a bottle, be it in a substance, be it in an experience, be it in whatever it is, an accomplishment, even that you think will fully satisfy you and bring you joy and happiness, we find eventually leaves us high and dry. It runs its course. It never satisfies the deepest parts of our hearts and our lives. One of my favorite authors, he puts it this way, we are the prodigal son every time we look for unconditional love outside the father. Every impulse, every drive, every appetite inside me that says I'm looking for unconditional love. I'm looking for satisfaction outside the confines of the grace of God, of the love of God. There's something prodigal inside of me. But once again, God's not trying to pay us back. He's trying to bring us back. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, and here's the thing, a severe famine across arose in the country, and he began to be in need. Now, here's what happens. When you're reckless living, you're usually not doing a whole bunch of Dave Ramsey stuff, are you? You're not keeping a budget. You know, you're not keeping a day planner. You're reckless living. You tend to go through these resources pretty quick. And what happens, famine sets in across the country, and he finds himself in need. He has this incredible fortune, and before he knows it, he's destitute. He's lost everything. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him out into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods, basically with the food that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. This guy's at rock bottom. Have you ever been at rock bottom? You ever experienced rock bottom? This place where you've lost all hope, or this place where you're truly desperate, this place where you think it truly can't get any worse. Imagine this. This is a, this is a Jewish audience, and he's talking about farming with pigs. Okay? I don't know if you read the Old Testament, but they're not big fans of pork. So there's this, there's this connotation that this could be the worst possible job. And how bad is his salary? Think your salary's bad. His salary's so bad that he has to eat the pig food. That's how destitute this guy is. It could not get much worse for him. But what happens at rock bottom? This is often the place that God takes us to to finally get our attention, to finally wake us up, to finally say, have you, have you gone far enough? Have you tried running far enough? Have you exhausted yourself finally? Do you want to come home? It's often in those moments of rock bottom that God grabs us by the scruff of our necks and gets our attentions finally. 
where we finally see the lies and lures of this world will not satisfy in the way that they promised us they would. What's interesting, you could just imagine, once again, think of the context. Jesus speaking to the tax collectors and he's speaking to the Pharisees. You can almost imagine the Pharisees at this point being like, we love this story. This is a great story. He's getting what he deserves. He's made a mess of things. Good. He deserves that. Almost they're, they're clapping. They're excited. They're like, yes, you, you reap what you sow. You made a mess of things. Now you got to eat food. Deal with it. You got to think of the tax collectors. They're like, man, I hope there's more to this story. And it's like there is. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven and before you. So he finally does the math. He wakes up. He sees himself eating pig food. He sees life has completely fallen apart. And he asks himself the question of, you know what? I'm probably going to be known as the failure. I'll probably be known as the person who messed it all up. But at least if I go home, I won't be famished. Maybe my father over time will come to tolerate me as an employee. Maybe he'll put up with me. Sure, everyone will snicker and laugh and say that was the foolish kid who made a mess of things, who destroyed his family, but at least I'll be fed. What a sad spot to be in. Feels like he's lost his identity. And what might be to me one of the saddest verses in all the Bible is verse 19. He's practicing his speech, and he says he's going to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's thought in his head, I've gone too far. I, I ran too far. I've rebelled too much. There's no way when my father thinks about me, he could still think son Maybe, just maybe, he would tolerate me as an employee. Friends, here's the truth. There are no employees in the household of God. There are only kids. There is no help wanted sign in the house of heaven. Only adopted children. <laughs> but how many of us spend our lives trying to work to pay God back? We think, God, hire me, hire me, hire me. There's no way you could really love me, but at least maybe you'll tolerate me if I do enough stuff, if I work hard enough, if I earn it, if I get my stuff together. Every other religion, every other religion ever created, every religion in the world is based on this message of get to work, God might be satisfied with you. Every religion is hire me, hire me, hire me. So sad. Because his identity at this point, the thing that he thinks about himself when he thinks about how his father thinks of him is failure, but maybe an employee. He doesn't think son. And how many of us, when we think about God, we think of God, I'll do the things that I'm supposed to do. I'll go to group because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. I'll read my Bible because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe even give because I think that's what I'm supposed to do. And God, it'll just keep you happy enough with me where you won't rain thunderbolts down on my life or give me too much troubles. This is our view of God. This is how we operate. This is how we live our lives. But friends, this is karma in religion. This is not the gospel. 
What we do, we see our young prodigal son, he, he gets his stuff together. On his way back, he's been traveling a far way to get home, and he's practicing his speech. Okay, just hire me. I know the ins and outs of the farm. Just, just give me a job, but I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. And then maybe one of the best verses in the Bible, verse 20. And he says, he arose, the father, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Think about this. The father, this is almost a, this is a busy guy. But yet before he's still a long way off, think about this. What does this tell us about the father? The father has been searching, has been looking, has been waiting, has been longing, has been hoping that his son would return. Imagine him just watching out over the hills, hoping in desperation that his son would come home. And he sees him while he's still a far way out, and he says he felt compassion. If you have a study Bible, you can look down in the notes, and, and the Greek word there for compassion is splankna. Is splankna. And what this is, this is, this is how the, the Hebrews would talk about your, your guts, your entrails, your, 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 your bowels. Because that when the Hebrews thought about like your emotions at, at their deepest level, it wasn't your head or it wasn't even necessarily your heart, but it was felt inside your gut. Like that deep-wrenching sense of loss maybe some of you have experienced, or that, that deep-wrenching sense of excitement or fear or joy or happiness. It's at a gut level. And so what this is literally telling us is that God's gut wrenched over his son. God looks at his lost son. He looks at his son while he's still far off, before he's given his I'm sorry speech, before he's even repented. And his stomach is already filled with this gut-busting compassion toward him. So what does he do? He runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible describes this. It says, he fell on his neck and he could not stop kissing him. So undignified, but yet the father doesn't care. He's an older man, he's a stately man, but he doesn't give a rip who sees him because all he knows is he has his gut-wrenching, gut-busting compassion and love for his lost son. <laughs> Amazing. But yet you're never gonna waste a good speech, are you? So verse 21, the son's still probably a little confounded. Okay, my father's been kissing me around the neck and he's tackled me and he's giving me a hug, but let me get my I'm sorry speech out anyway. In verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So there he is. He's saying, when I look at my identity, when I look at who I am, I know I'm out of the family. I know I've gone too far. I know there's no right, there's no way that I could ever be part of the family again. But could, once again, could I just be a servant? And the father finally cuts him off and he says, I've had it. I don't want to hear any more of your speech. All I know is right now we need to bring quickly the best robe and we need to put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now you want to know how you really have been in reckless living? You show up home naked and without shoes. This guy's gone really far. If you ever wonder how hard you partied, if you're showing up home and you've lost your shoes, you maybe went a little too hard. So he gets some shoes and he gets him a robe and the ring is altogether symbolic too because what it does is it likely had the family crest on it. And he's restoring them and he says, you are part of the family. This is your identity. This is where you belong. See, this father's heart could not change toward his son regardless of what he did. Think of Hosea 11. This is how God describes his heart toward the nation of Israel. He said, I, I taught you to walk. I counted your little toes and fingers. I remember when you used to burp up at night. I remember swaddling you. 
because you're my kid. I love you. And nothing could separate you from that love. That love is my heart. That's my disposition for you. Because at the bedrock, at the core, what you must understand, what God thinks about when he thinks about you is he's not focused on the do, but he's focused on the who. Not what you do, but who you are. Not what you can do for him, because God doesn't want employees, but rather he wants kids. God is focused on the who, and then even at the core of that, whose you are. And whose you are is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the gracious, miracle-working God of the universe. And so what does he do? Verse 23, the Father just continues to celebrate, and that's what you do when there's good news. You celebrate. And he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate you got to imagine the son's like, don't you think I've had enough of partying? Like, don't you think? I, I mean, I already had a fill, right? He's got to be a little confused. But that's the very nature of the gospel is it's altogether confounding and confusing. You think you deserve punishment and judgment, and what you get is grace and celebration instead. That's amazing. You don't get what you deserve. None of us get what we deserve. And if you got what you deserve, it would be death. But what you get is grace. What you get is adoption. What you get is a new nature. What you get is all the riches and inheritance that Christ could ever offer you. And there's a party thrown in heaven at the repentance of one sinner. And we model this out. This is what baptism is. It's always amazing to me when people say things like, you know, there are no miracles anymore. I always want to say them. Have you ever seen a baptism? A baptism is miraculous. You know what a baptism is? A baptism is a dead person coming alive. So when people say, hey, why doesn't God raise the dead anymore? I say he raises the dead all the time. Have you ever seen a dead person come to life? It's a baptism, a new heart and a new nature and a new desire. And they go from death to life. They, get, they go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That is altogether miraculous. This is the most, way more miraculous than walking on water is changing the human heart. It's changing the nature of people. And that's what God does. That's what God's still doing today. Friends, I would say, if you have not received that message, if you don't know that God, then today's the day even for that. For you to be, have a new heart and a new nature, know that God loves you and that he's for you. This is a miracle, friends, and nothing separates you who are in Christ Jesus from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this is not where our story finishes, although it'd feel like a good place to finish, right? There's always that older brother who we heard about a little earlier on. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard the music and the dancing. Now, that verse is always intriguing to me. Like, hearing music, that makes sense. But hearing dancing, that's, that's a legit party. I don't know about you, but I've never, like, been strolling up to a house party where I heard the dancing. But that's a house party I would want to go to. Like, you're outside, and it's like, man, I can hear the dancing. Are those people going to go through the floor? Like, it's out. Like, this is a legit, you got to think, this is, a, this is a good party. This is a party you want to be at. And so he calls one of the servants, and he says, what do these things mean? And the servant says to him, verse 27, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Rails has gone off the deep end into addiction and rebellion and throwing away his family he comes home. You've got to be thinking, yes, you've got to be thinking, I can't, get, I can't wait to get right in there too and celebrate along with them. But that's not his posture, is it? Verse 28 
but he was angry and refused to go in. He was angry and he refused to go in. So what does he do? The party's going on. A dead person has come to life. What was lost has been found. And what does he do? He stands off in the corner, mad, angry. What's going on inside of his heart in this moment? Why can't he celebrate? Why can't he join in with the rest of the festivities? Well, we find out. The father comes out, and he entreats him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And this is where you can almost hear the anger and the frustration and the grumbling in his voice. Listen for this. And he says, I never disobeyed your command. I've kept all the rules. I did all the right things. I did everything I was supposed to. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You can almost hear he's fools. I'm angry. He's livid. These are the Pharisees. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I kept all the rules. I fulfilled everything I was supposed to do. I thought I had all the good stuff coming my way. And yet this kid over here, this younger brother of mine, who's made a mess of everything, not only did he take half of our stuff and blow it on reckless living, but now we're throwing him a party? Seems altogether unfair. Then he says, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf with him. Notice that phrase when he says, but this son of yours, this son, he's distancing himself from his brother. He's, and you wouldn't say that about one of your siblings. You'd say like when, when my little brother came home, but he's distancing himself. He's wanting to remind the little brother, you're not part of this family. You're not my sibling anymore. You've made too big of a mess of things. You're outside the family And his real objection, the heart of heart's objection for him in this moment is that it's not fair. It's not fair. And why is that? Where is this emanating from? Where is this religious impulse coming from? What it is, is he has the same thing. He's been rebelling against his father just the way the younger brother was rebelling against the father. But his rebellion was, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep all the rules so that I get all the stuff. At least the younger brother had the, in some ways, the, the courage to just say, I don't care about you, I want all the stuff. The older brother's saying the exact same thing. I obeyed the rules because I wanted the stuff. I never wanted the relationship with you. I was just obeying. I was just doing all the things that I was supposed to so that I would get blessing. And it doesn't seem fair. He can't go in. He can't celebrate. His heart is hard. And so here's what the father says to him. And you've got to imagine at this point, the father's just got this, this broken, choked up sense to him, only sense of anguish. And he said to him, son, you were always with me. But was he really? I mean, was, his, was, was the sense of like the, the older brother, I mean, you've got to think of him. This was more like a contract than a relationship with his father. And how many of us, we don't think covenant, you know what a covenant is? The Bible speaks all the time of covenant. A covenant is, I'm for you. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what you do, I want to see you flourish. I want good for you. And a contract says you keep your end of the bargain, I keep my end of the bargain, and we'll both get what we want out of it. And a lot of us, we walk around with a contract view of God rather than a covenant view of God. A contract view of God says, God, you keep my family happy, you keep me employed, you give me the things I want, and I'll do the things that you told me I'm supposed to do. But if tragedy comes my way, if hardship comes my way, if things get difficult, then I'm going to begin to whine and complain because really it wasn't about you, God. It was about the stuff. It was about the life that you were giving me. 
We know we're falling into those older brother moments when our hearts start to say to God in the midst of trial and suffering and loss, God, why are you doing this? It's not fair. That's such an older brother impulse, isn't it? And so this is what the father says. He says, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. Now the ending of that parable is probably the most haunting part. It just stops. It doesn't tell us if the older brother came in. It doesn't tell us if he repented. At least with the younger brother, we know that he came into the house. He made his way back home. The older brother, for all we know, he continued to stand outside with his arms folded, stiff-necked, and angry, thinking life was not fair. Yourself in the older brother, when things don't go your way, when life doesn't play out the way you want, do you feel owed? Do you get bitter and frustrated with God? The elder brother is actually, in my opinion, more lost than the younger brother because he doesn't even know he's lost. What's funny is he's lost even though he's in his house the whole time. He's actually truly lost. It's like, it's like being sick and not even knowing you're sick. The elder brother, his posture basically is when he's looking at this story, he doesn't see the one who is being reckless here as the younger brother. But you want to know who's being really reckless in this story? The father. The father, he's the one who's reckless. He's reckless in his love. His love knows no bounds. His love knows no limits. And even when the older brother says, your love has gone too far, he continues to demonstrate his love. God, guys, we have a, a reckless God who loves us like that, who loves us with no limits, with no bounds, and comes after us even when we think we are way too far gone. And this is the thing. As you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's this truth. It's this never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up, never-separating love of God. This is the only thing truly that will transform you. It's this realization at your core, understanding your identity is not employee. Your identity is not as failure. Your identity is not as servant, but rather your identity is as son and daughter of God that God loves you. And when you see that, when you grasp that, when you jump into the deep end of theology, that Jesus loves me, this I know, that begins to change us and transform us and takes root in who we are. And imagine when that transforms an entire church. Imagine when that transforms a church. It begins to transform neighborhoods and communities and cities and even nations, realizing that our God is in the story of telling cosmic redemption for all people. John Newton said it like this, our pleasure and duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Isn't that beautiful? So let me read this to you, and, and then I'm gonna close. But who is the gospel for? Who is this reckless good news love for? The gospel is for those who have been crushed by life. The gospel is for those who have gone too far. Those who think they have tapped out and maxed out the extent of God's grace. The gospel is for the overachiever and the proud. The gospel is for those who are worn out from trying to earn an identity in a world that will never give it to them. The gospel is for those who call God creator, but not Abba. The gospel is for those who keep God at the margins of their mind and call on him only in times of sickness and sorrow. 
The gospel's for the rich, the gospel's for the poor, the gospel's for the friendless, the gospel is for the awkward, the gospel is for those who are stuck in sexual addiction and same-sex attraction, the gospel is for black people, the gospel is for white people, the gospel is for all people, the gospel is for the smart, the down and out, the broken, the lost, the confused, and those who are in despair. The gospel is for those with little economic opportunity or advancement, and the gospel is for those who run industry and are CEOs and leaders of nations. The gospel is for those who are bound up and bored and tired. The gospel is those who are filled with life and celebrating. Heck, the gospel is for the one who has already fallen asleep during this sermon. The gospel, friends, is for you and is for me. And this truth, this, this reality, this, this never-ending love of God is what transforms us. So, as a follower of Jesus, do everything you can to be in community, to be in your Bible, to be in church. Why? Because you need to have this truth beat in. not an employee, but you're a child of God. And that when he thinks about you, he thinks loved, he thinks saved, he thinks made new, he thinks child. You know, after Good Friday, God didn't go to the return line asking for a refund. He, he loves you so much. He loves you. And let that transform you. Let's pray. God, you have been exceptionally gracious to us. You've loved us. You've met us exactly where we are at. You've been abundantly kind to us. You draw near to us even when we run away from you. You love us even when we are unlovable. And God, we bring nothing to the table except all of our mess. And in that, you still look at us and you wrap us in a robe of righteousness and you, you invite us into the family and you bring us to a feast. God, thank you for giving us a church family. Thank you for loving us in ways that, that we just don't deserve. But yet that is the very nature of grace. There is nothing we can do to earn what you have given us. And so because of that truth, we live out hearts of gratitude and awe and adoration and worship about the kind of God that you are. Not a God who's trying to pay us back, but rather a God that brings us back home. And so God, we, we want to sing songs to you now, knowing that you are a God of incredible love, and that you've loved us long before we loved you. And because of that, your name is great. Amen.